2: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandys can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. iHeartRadio presents Podversations, a weekly discussion with the biggest names and influencers in podcasting. Want to learn the secret psych-up ritual Scrubs star Zach Braff and Donald Faison use before every fake doctor's real friends taping? How Vice News parachutes into war zones to rescue journalists from life-threatening situations? Or why Keegan-Michael Key and Blumhouse believe 3D audio is the future of storytelling? Whether you're a newbie trying to break into the podcast game or an exec trying to refine your playbook, conversations is the easiest way to keep your pulse on the industry.
3: and thank you so much for joining us for the iHeart Podcast webinar speaker series. We started these conversations, shoot, two, three, four years ago when we were all sort of moving into a new world during quarantine, during COVID. And we wanted to use the opportunity to stay connected, keep having good conversations with the creators that we partner with. And these led to some of the most interesting conversations I've had in my life with some of the creators that we started a relationship through podcasting with. Today is really no exception. First of all, David Eagleman, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Such a pleasure to be here. We were sort of half joking all in earnest before going live on the recording about your bio. It's lengthy, it's remarkable, but I wanna sort of read it in full just so folks have a sense of your background, what you bring to the table and the scope of what we can talk about. David is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, an internationally best-selling author, a Guggenheim Fellow. He's the writer and presenter of The Brain, an Emmy-nominated TV series on PBS and BBC. Eagleman's areas of research include sensory substitution, time perception, vision, and synesthesia. He's also studied the intersection of neuroscience with the legal system. In that way, he directs the Center for Science and Law. David, you're also the author of many books, including Live Wired, The Runaway Species, The Brain, Incognito. And you're the author of a widely adopted textbook. It's called Brain and Behavior. You're also the best-selling book of literary fiction, Some. S-U-M, which has been translated into 32 languages, turned into two operas. You write for multiple publications, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Economist, Discover, Slate, Wired. I want to go back to the two operas. <laughs> Walk us through that piece. So was it really Turned into two operas?
4: Two separate operas, yeah. One was by Brian Eno, the British musician who made an opera at the Sydney Opera House. And the other one was by Max Richter who turned into an opera at the Royal Opera House in London. So that was just coincidence. I didn't know either of those guys at the time. Now they're
3: good friends. What was it like working with Brian Eno? He's literally my favorite musician. And I think I listen to music for airports once a day. And that may be an actual number. What's it like working with him?
4: Oh, he's great. He's such a smart guy. I mean, if you met him and you didn't know that he was a musician, you would just think he's a philosopher or a professor of some sort. He's just such a bright, intelligent, forward-leaning guy.
3: Was he one of those guys where it's like any idea? You were like, Yes, that's perfect. Do whatever you want. Or was there actually push and pull and a dialogue around what kind of opera he turned it into?
4: Well, I'm sort of a moron when it comes to music. So that was his department. But I just participated and, you know, had a great time with the event. It's awesome.
3: Okay. Back to sort of the bullseye stuff of what you are known for, what you focused on a bunch. You're an- neuroscientist, you've written eight books on the interesting ways our brains sort of interpret and communicate, one of which is a collection of short stories. Why is it a basic question to start with, but why is it so important that we understand why and how our brains experience the world the way they do?
4: Well, fundamentally, we are our brains. And so if you want to understand anything about your existence here and what this is all about, uh, you have to go to the three pound control center where it's all happening. And the reason we know that is because you know, people get brain damage every day. We see hundreds of cases in the clinics and even a very small amount of damage in your brain can change your reality. It changes your decision-making or your risk aversion or your capacity to see colors or name animals or understand music or anything. And so, you know, if you damage a different part of your body, you don't have that same sort of thing. Maybe you're a little sad that you hurt your pinky or something, but you're not different as a person. So that's how we know that this is the densest representation of you and of who you are. And so fundamentally, I think this is where philosophy has to graduate to is
3: neuroscience. Did you start out with that focus? Were you, I don't know, 18 in undergraduate school saying, nah, this is gonna be it, the brain is my life? Or did you sort of evolve into it through other subjects?
4: A little bit of both. My my father was a psychiatrist and my mother was a biology teacher. So in retrospect, it's sort of obvious how I ended up here. But when I went to university, I studied lots of science, but I majored in British and American literature which was really my first love. And I took a lot of philosophy courses and that's what got me interested in, you know, how could we get out of these philosophical quagmires and actually have something that approximates an answer to these questions instead of just ending each semester with question marks. So, yeah, the last semester of my senior year, I took a neuroscience class and then I was hooked. I knew I'd found the thing.
3: Do you feel like you've found some bridge between philosophical thinking and neuroscientific thinking? Or do you feel like, ah eh. No, it's still kind of frustrating. These are really different disciplines, and it's actually hard to bridge them. And they argue a lot. Where's your head at with it now that you've sort of done both?
4: Yeah, no, I think that neuroscience has the capacity to answer fundamental philosophical questions. This is one example. You know, one argument that goes back in philosophy is if you were born blind, do you have a sense of the three-dimensional world. Is that something that's inherent or learned? Anyway, one of the things that I've done in my lab, and I now do this with a company, is uh, we build this hardware to pass information to the brain via patterns of vibration. And we have done this with people who are blind. We put, let's say, a chest strap with vibratory motors on it, and they walk around and they can feel where everything is. As they're walking around, if somebody's coming towards them, they feel a vibration and it gets stronger. And then the person moves behind them, they can feel the person moving around behind them and so on. And it turns out that people who are blind immediately get this. They immediately can map the three dimensional world to a perception of what's going on. And so this is just one example of many where we're able to tackle a philosophical question and demonstrate what's going on within. we've done lots of things in the domain of time and time perception and just generally how we perceive the world and how that's underpinned by these mechanisms in here, this three pound universe in there.
3: And to think about these sort of very real world practical applications of what you study, it brings me to what we sort of started these conversations out of too, which is quarantine and COVID. Mm. It's a big basic question too, but does somebody like you see a massive traumatic event like that to the human race, to put it one way, do you start going in your mind about all the different ways that this is going to change how we think and behave? Like, where does your head go?
4: Yeah, sure. I've been studying this from the beginning of it. I mean, look, we know all the ways in which it was terrible. That list is endless, but I do actually think there's a silver lining to it, which is that the job of the brain is to construct a model of the world. So your brain is locked in silence and darkness and it's just trying to figure out what's going on in the world how do i operate in the world how do i move my body how do i move socially and so on and it turns out that the brain is very flexible and good at this sort of thing, except as it gets older, it says, okay, I've I've sort of figured it out. I've sort of seen all the patterns. I know how people behave. I know what to say and so on. And so it stops doing a lot of changing and learning because the only time the brain learns is when they're surprised. So what happened with the pandemic is we all got knocked off our hamster wheel and suddenly nothing was the same. All of our deeply held assumptions about, you know, okay, yeah, I can go to the store and get toilet paper on aisle six. That's always going to be whatever. Suddenly, everything changed and the toilet paper was out and and the Starbucks was closed and the bank was closed. All these things that we could have never imagined happened all at once in March of 2020. And as a result, we were forced to exercise our brains in a way that we would not have had the opportunity to do otherwise. And that's actually really healthy for the brain. It's the best thing you can do for your brain is to constantly challenge it. And this, by the way, is really the best thing we know for dementias like Alzheimer's, the way to at least fight back against that is to constantly challenge your brain with novelty. So anyway, mm. in a
3: sense, that's what happened to all of us from the pandemic. That is fascinating. It's a very, very cool way to look at it.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. Even before you do, every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com.
1: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
3: It's funny, I was thinking as you were talking, about 10 years ago, I bought a motorcycle. I had no idea how to ride one. I felt similar for about the first year riding it. I felt like I have no idea what I'm doing. But I definitely felt, I don't know, more alive, younger, more observant in trying to learn this totally foreign thing. Today, I try to hide it all the time because I have two teenage sons and I don't want them riding it, but I relate to that. It's sort of when you're knocked, sometimes literally, off balance, you're in a different mode. Your aperture is a little more open. Is that what you sort of witnessed people doing during quarantine a little bit?
4: Yeah, I mean, yes, and it's hard to witness it because everyone was so depressed and you know there were a hundred other problems going on, but okay, here's my totally speculative statement, which is that when we look you know, 50 years from now, we're going to see a slight decrease in dementias that happened. As a result, Of everyone having to really exercise their brains and figure new things out. I mean, everyone figured out new professions, new ways to set up studios in their home, new ways to run their business. I mean, people were just really exercising their brains in ways that they wouldn't have if everything had been the same in 2019. And by the way, had you grown up in a world where everybody drove motorcycles and then you got a truck and no one had one of those, you'd be having the same sort of thing of like, wow, look at this, the size of this, the power, the fact that I don't have wind in my fit. You know, you'd have all all these things that are just making your brain think about things differently.
3: Awesome. So you partnered with the iHeart Podcast Network on a show called Inner Cosmos. Just talk about what the phrase means for a second.
4: Yeah. So that's my phrase for what is happening inside here. I grew up watching Carl Sagan and Cosmos, and I loved it as a child so much. And what struck me as I you know, became a neuroscientist, got a PhD and did a postdoctoral fellowship and professorship and so on, is that what we have... Have in here is the inner cosmos, which is really just as mysterious fundamentally as what's going on out there. And we're just starting to send, you know, little rocket probes in there to even understand the whole alien computation that's happening in there. So, to my mind, that is as exciting or possibly more exciting than what's going on in the cosmos out there because we've got this cornered, we've got this three pound. You know, organism cornered. So that's what the show is named after. And what it's about is I'm using sort of the, the freak economics model of, of doing this, where each episode is some weird question that I pose. And then I'm doing this as a monologue. And for about 40, 45 minutes, I unpack this weird question in three acts, and I get to explore these issues that are really revealing. They shine light on what it is to be a human and to have experience and to have a life and so on. So just as an example, the first episode is called, does time really run in slow motion when you get in a car accident? And this was based on when I was a child, I had a life-threatening experience. I fell off of a, the roof of a house and everything seemed to take a long time. And I ended up collecting hundreds of reports from people who said that time seemed to run in slow motion for them, you know, when they were in a car accident or a gunfight or something like that. And so I realized no one had ever studied this in neuroscience before. And the answer is obvious why. It's because you can't replicate this unless you stick someone in a truly life-threatening situation. But I figured out how to do that. And I measured this. So I won't tell you the answer. You have to listen to the episode. (laughs) But this is just one example of this. And I've got a million interesting questions about our lives and who we are and how we make decisions and how we operate in the world. And that's what the show is about. It's the
3: intersection between neuroscience and our lives. And so much of it too is just these adages that we've used a bunch and take for granted, but just don't understand, but that actually may be grounded in some truth, like time slowing down when you're having a traumatic event. I think there is a topic that you've talked a decent amount of in your career called synesthesia And I I think it's sort of popularized here and there, probably pretty widely misunderstood. But to the extent that I know it, it's. Deeply fascinating. Just talk through that a little bit. First of all, how you got into it, how it got on your radar, but then what it is, how we misunderstand it, maybe. Yeah.
4: So I'll tell you what synesthesia is it's a blending of the senses. So someone with synesthesia might look at letters or numbers and that triggers a color experience, or they hear a piece of music and it triggers something visual for them, or they hear something and it puts a taste in their mouth, or they taste something and puts a feeling on their fingertips. You know, it's just a blending of the senses. There are about 150 different flavors of synesthesia that my colleagues and I have documented now. The reason I I got into it is not because I have synesthesia, but because I understood this is a very powerful inroad into understanding consciousness, because synesthesia is not considered a disease or a disorder. It's just an alternative perceptual reality. So about three to 5% of the population has synesthesia and they're just experiencing the world differently than you are or than I am. And what that demonstrates is the way that the brain constructs reality and how that can be different from head to head.
1: That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Maybe loosely related to it, you did a TED talk on, broadly speaking, the idea of creating new senses for humans. Yeah. And- It's an awesome TED Talk. I want everybody to listen to Inner Cosmos, the podcast. They should also go watch this. But for those who haven't seen it or who might check it out later today, just give us a preview. Like, what is that idea about of new senses for humans?
4: Yeah, I got really interested in how the brain locked in silence and darkness constructs any of this. For example, you know, colors don't exist in the outside world. All you have is electromagnetic radiation of different wavelengths and your brain constructs this private subjective experience of blue or red or green or so on. And, you know, sound doesn't exist as such. It's just air compression waves that are moving around. And yet I hear a beautiful piece of music or my wife's voice or things like that. And so anyway, this is all happening inside the inner cosmos here. And so I got really interested in this question of could you create new senses by pushing new kinds of data streams in there? So I ended up building a vest with these vibratory motors on it. I sort of referred to this before and it captures sound. So for people who who are deaf I have the vest capture the sound and it puts patterns of vibration that represent the sound, which is, by the way, exactly what your inner ear normally does. Your inner ear captures sound, and it breaks it up from high to low frequency, and it ships it off to the brain in these little electrical spikes. So I'm doing the same thing through the vest, but capturing sound as patterns on the skin, which goes up the spinal cord as patterns of spikes. And it turns out it works, and deaf people can come to hear that way. And it's this incredible thing. So I spun a company off of my lab called Neosensory, and in the interim, we've shrunk it down to a wristband, which has vibratory motors on it, it's doing the same thing. And we're now on wrists all over the world. So for people who are deaf, this captures sound and replaces their ear. And what's cool is that although we actually have three different hearing products on the market, but we have 70 projects that are in development where we're trying to extend new senses in other ways. Like, can you see infrared light? Can you develop a direct perceptual experience of a light that we can't normally see? Or stock market data, or satellite data, or Twitter, or you know, flying a drone and you feel the pitch-yaw-roll orientation and heading of the drone on your skin, this sort of thing.
3: Do you sort of see out 10, 50, 100 years a different way that people think and behave based on, yes, some of the products you're making, but like, do you have this constant running thought in the background of like, guys, you have no idea what being a human is going to look and feel like in 100 years from now?
4: Oh, I absolutely think that. And by the way, we don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, in other words, those of us who are creating new things and so on can only speculate about what it's going to look like. But what I know for certain is that we have more in common with our ancestors a thousand years ago hmm. than we do with our
3: descendants a hundred years from now. It's fascinating. And I mean, I don't want to overlay this notion on but are you hopeful? Are you like, look, we have powers inside the inner cosmos, as you put it, that we have yet to sort of click together and put to work, not to put words in your mouth, but that's sort of how it seems. And also it's trending in a good direction. The smarter, more capable, more multifaceted, whatever the right word we get, the better we'll be, which is a loaded term. I get that. But where's your head on that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, generally, I'm extremely optimistic about where everything is going. All technologies, every development in science and anything comes with good and bad. You know, if you figure out nuclear power, you get bombs and you also get nuclear power plants that fund whole cities. So, you know, everything is good and bad. But in general, I'm super optimistic about where we're going. And this is true of the machines we've been building anyway. You know, since the Industrial Revolution, we've just made life... Better and easier, by which I mean we don't waste time, you know, washing our clothes down by the river. You just toss them in the washing machine. What's going on now is there's such a revolution happening in AI just in the last few months. I mean, 2023 has been extraordinary for this. In fact, one of my next podcast episodes is going to be about what generative AI means for creatives like artists and writers, which I'm, you know, I'm a fiction writer. You know, I'm going to talk about this issue at length. But I think it's terrific. We're building new machines all the time that free us up from stuff we don't have to do. And really takes advantage of our human creativity to be able to make things better and faster.
3: Is there a part of you that thinks, you know, there's these concerns, science fiction or not, that AI will outpace the human intellect at some point? You'll have technological singularities or what have you. Is there a part of you that sort of responds to that? Well, no, I mean, we understand a fraction of what the human brain is capable of to begin with. How do you sort of true those two things up?
4: Yeah, well, there's two aspects to this. So one is what you said, which is absolutely correct. We haven't even scratched the surface of what we can do with the human brain. For example, this thing about building new senses, that's what I'm working on. And there's just so much to be discovered there. But the second thing is, of course, AI will outpace us, but it'll be in very narrow paths. So for example, we have for a long time built machines that outpace our physical strength. You know, I'm fairly strong, but I can't compete with a crane or a bulldozer or something like that. And that's great. And none of us fret about that. And it's the same thing. We will have AI that does particular tasks for us. By the way, in the way that we have it now, for example, hi, Excel spreadsheet, I want you to add these 3,000 numbers together. That's smarter than I am. It can do it in a second. It would take me a a month to do it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness we have that. So, you know, the fact that we have AI on our phones that can tell us, hey, here's how to drive from here to there. Thank goodness I don't have to have a fold-out paper map and look at everything every time. So of course it'll outpace us. But in the ways that we build it to, in the ways that we want it to.
3: I want to land at the end here just on podcasting very specifically. Like I said, it's usually the excuse with which we have these conversations. We at iHeartMedia sort of fell in love with this medium five or six years ago. We've been making podcasts for 15 or 16 years, but really decided this is a truly awesome new medium to create, tell stories in. And one of the joys of the last four or five, six years has been seeing other creators use the medium in really sort of surprising and awesome ways. So Will Ferrell using it to recruit, develop and break new comedic talent. Shonda Rhimes using it to tell cool new audio dramas, Malcolm Gladwell using it in a variety of ways. How do you think about it? Why did you choose podcasting as a way to communicate? And maybe specifically, what so far has been sort of nicely surprising about the medium that you might not have known previously?
4: You know, I've done, as as you said at the beginning, I've written lots of books. I've been doing that my whole life. I write lots of articles and I've been doing a lot of television the last several years. So I made a PBS series called The Brain. I made a thing on Netflix called The Creative Brain. But this was a medium that kept attracting me like a will of the wisp, I just, I kept seeing it in the distance and getting really interested in it. And the thing that I've found so far that's so lovely about it is that I can generate an episode so much more rapidly than I can write, let's say 5,000 words in a book, because in a book I torture myself over every sentence and I try to make it the most perfect, beautiful sentence ever with the perfect adjective and so on. But when I'm doing a podcast, I can just speak. It's like I turned the faucet open and I can talk about the things that I think are amazing And I don't have to kill myself over the exactitude of the phrasing. So that's what I have found to be wonderful about it. And I am, as I mentioned right now, I'm doing the whole thing as monologues, but I'm very interested in doing all kinds of explorations. I'm going to include little blips of interviews that I do with friends here and there. I'm going to try other things. I'm going to try all kinds of ways of doing it and see what works best for me.
3: Awesome. I think that is the exact right way to use the medium too. And so, so psyched, David. And everybody listening today, please take a second, subscribe to and listen to the new podcast from David Eagleman, Inner Cosmos in partnership with the iHeart Podcast Network. David, thank you so much for hanging out today. It means a lot to us. It's deeply interesting and really, really grateful. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody, thank you so much for hanging out with us too. We will see you next week for another episode. Everybody take care. Be well.
0: Conversations is a production of iHeartRadio. You can find more from the biggest names in podcasting on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.